The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we sing that song, and we sing it in hope for right now, for this moment, for this time. As we open up your word, we ask you that you would come and that you would illumine our minds, that you would make it clear, that you would show us Christ in it. But I want to pray those words and that idea for the following days and weeks and months because of what we hope for you to do now in this time. Because we hope for you to come and illumine our minds from your word now, I'm asking that you would produce a mind-illumining work from your word in coming weeks and in coming months, that there would be a change in us. He would speak through your word now and therefore would open up a channel for you to speak through your word continually and in new ways and in longer, wider ways. That's what we need, Lord. We do not need just a moment of your speaking now. We need you to meet with us, to speak us, to guide us, to illumine the word for life every day, on and on and on. Because, God, the reality is that we walk in a dark world, in a confusing world, in a distracting, deceiving world. And it is hard for us to know where the right path lies. We do not ever get to a point where we just know in and of ourselves. We need you to light the way every day, every week, every month. We need your word to be illumined for us. So then therefore you speaking through your word illumines the path for us. That's what the passage is is calling out for, Lord, for, for us to come to your word and to find life in it, not just today, but every day. God, help us. God, would you descend on your people here and help us? I speak here, I I hope for, for most, I hope for all of us here, that we have zero desire, zero desire to be a church in name only. If we are not a church in reality, a, a people, the congregation of the saints, the assembly is what the church means. The, the assembly of the people of God. If we are not really people of God, really assembled to really pursue walking after you, to be earnest about you, to, to want to know and then to find and want to walk on the path of life. If we are not that, Lord, what, what is the point? We do not want to be something other. But for us to be that, you must speak and you must change us and you must show the path to walk and give us a desire to walk it every day to renew us and make us different. God, help us. To 
towards that end, Lord, would you illumine this passage today to show us some of what's at stake and how to, how to get it. We are dependent on you. So give light to your word today. Shine into our hearts. Bring conviction where necessary. Bring encouragement where needed. We ask you to speak for you to make a people, for you to make a church. Speak through your word. Spirit of God, have your way with us. Conduct significant house cleaning amongst the people of God, I pray. Thank you that you love us, and thank you that you love us enough to tell us who you are, to tell us how to walk, and then, oh, so importantly, to help us to walk it. So make your word clear this morning, I pray, Lord. Thank you. Amen. I'm not sure if the mic needs to be adjusted. It feels a little hot to me. Last week when I finished the book of 1 Samuel, I mentioned how really 1 and 2 Samuel are, are one book together, but we have divided them in, in half for convenience sake. So we finished 1 Samuel, but we haven't really finished the book of Samuel as God gave it to us. So in a couple of weeks, we are going to move ahead on into 2 Samuel to, to get the whole story. But this morning, with the men's retreat this week and, and so many men away at it, although I do see a number come back, um, but a number are still away, and we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to preach Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1, not a chapter, it's a psalm. I've preached on the Psalms before, and in fact, on this particular Psalm, but it's been seven years or so, so don't expect you to remember it. I'm going to make a couple of introductory remarks to help us kind of approach the Psalms in general properly before moving on specifically to talk about Psalm 1. A Psalm is a poetic prayer in which the, the writer of the Psalm is laying out in front of the people of God his, his heart. But he's, he's laying it out in front of the people of God kind of incidentally because primarily he's laying out in front of God. The posture of a psalm is, is like this. The psalmist speaking to God his own heart or sometimes the collective heart of, his, of the people. Reaching up to God, calling out to Him, making requests of Him, talking very honestly about His, his sorrows or His joys. Sometimes recounting truths that are relevant for the, the difficulties that he's facing. Primarily he's speaking like this, less so than like this. So, so right away we should have it in our minds that when we approach a psalm, it's, it's different than approaching some other pieces of the scripture, such as like a, a letter of Paul, for instance. The letter of Paul is primarily written like this. The, the writer, Paul, speaking to the people of God, less than like this. So we have a slightly different approach when we come to a psalm. We have all these poetic songs gathered together, written by a whole bunch of different authors in a whole different, whole diff- bunch of different settings. And they are, as I said, primarily oriented like this. 
but they are collected and written down because they are also meant to instruct. Secondarily, they're meant to teach the people of God how it is that we can lift up our hearts to God, call out to Him, make requests of Him, cast our cares on Him, recall the important truths about God that that match relevant situations and, and troubles and trials. So they are gathered here, uh, assembled in, in certain order, so that we can learn how to pray. So we can learn how to sing. And they're poetry. So some, some of the scientists of, of the church have always had a little difficulty with the Psalms because they don't quite work like straightforward instruction. They're poems and songs. They're heavy in imagery, heavy in emotion. You need to read it with the thought, I'm reading a poem and I'm looking for an image. I want to feel it. And there's instruction in it to teach me, both. It's a little different than some other genres. So we come to a a poem today, number one. Psalm 1, set up at the beginning of the book of the Psalms because it's designed along with, with uh, Psalm 2 to be the, the introduction to the whole book. It kind of sets us in the right place to look at all of the rest of the Psalms. And as such, it's going to teach us to meditate. It's going to call us to think, to ponder. So, with that, let me read Psalm 1. I think as, as I do, I, th- I think you can see in it the basic division that I'm going to be looking at this morning. There are two types of lives and a, and a dividing line between them. Two types of lives and a what separates the two. How one gets this life and how one, if skipped, gets that life. So that's how I'm going to divide it with two, two lives and, a, and a, a dividing line in the middle. So look for that as I read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1. First of the two types of lives presented is found primarily in verses 1 to 3. Let me summarize it like this with, with this statement. The life of blessedness is available. The life of blessedness is available. A marvelous full life. Verse 1, blessed is the man or, or woman 
blessed, that is what that word means, happy or fortunate or glad in heart. Blessed. The psalmist starts right there where, where frankly, every single one of us, we want to end up. Every person longs for, has, has in here a, a, a drive, a desire for a blessed life. A life that is full with solid peace and joy, that is, that is glad in heart, full of blessing and characterized by internal happiness and contentedness. Blessedness. Everybody wants that. A life that is alive and that flourishes like a strong, thriving tree. You see the imagery that he picks up in verse 3. And if you think about a tree in in a very dry land like like Israel, the psalmist's land, or like Utah, in fact, some similarities there, trees don't just grow everywhere because they need water. Little bushes, little shrubs, certain very, very dry, small things don't need very much water, but a tree, for a tree to grow and spread out and, and flourish and produce fruit, it needs water. So you can't just plant one anywhere. There needs to be some water around it or it will die. And a tree that's planted by streams of water will flourish. It will grow up strong and true. It will produce its right fruit at the right time and it will never shrivel, shrivel up, but instead will continue to thrive and grow. It will produce leaves. It will produce shade and fruit. So part of reading a psalm is that you've got to see the image here. So imagine yourself traveling across, say you're in the United States and you're moving west across the central part of the U.S. in the summer. And it's hot and it's dry, and it's hot and it's dry, and it's hot and it's dry. We had a chance some couple years back to, to travel part of the Oregon Trail through Oregon and thought, my goodness, it is hot and it is dry. And all around you, all you see are little bitty bushes and dried up prairie grass that might sprang up with the, with the spring rains, but that's long ago. Now you step on it and it breaks. It's hot and it's dry. It's hot and it's dry. And off in the distance, you see at first very small, but as you approach it, it gets larger and larger and larger trees. And what you know, you do approach it because you know there's water there. Those trees would not grow if there was not water. I don't know what kind of water yet. It might be drawn from an underground well. It might be a lake. It might be a river. But there's water because trees need water. Of course, different ones need different amounts, but trees and water go together. And if they are thriving trees, flourishing with leaves and with fruit, there is water. The two things are inseparable. The blessed life is a life like a tree that is flourishing and prospering. It grows up. It has branches and leaves and fruit. And that means there's water coming into that life. And a wa- it's like a tree, it says, planted by streams of water. If you think about a tree, keep thinking about the image, a tree that's planted by a stream, it's drawing up water through its roots, coming up into the tree, into the trunk, into the branches. And that is water that has come from somewhere else. It is water that is independent of the immediate circumstances all right around here. It may not have rained here for a year. But if it rained in those mountains over there, we're fine. See the image? 
Because it's coming into the stream and flowing down. And my roots sunk down in deep. Deeper than just the surface where there's no rainwater anymore. Sunk down deep is drawing up from beneath that stream. Water that came from somewhere else. A flourishing tree in the middle of a dry land where everything else withers. That's the image. That's the life of blessedness. That life is possible. You can, you can be like that. You can be a person that everywhere around you there is no water anymore. And everything else is dead and withered up and drying and crackling. It's so dry. But I still am alive, flourishing shade, fruit, because I've got water from somewhere else that I'm drawing up. That can be you. The life of blessedness. Verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. Literally, he will be prospered. Stop for a second on that word. Prosper. What does that word mean? So you have this picture of a fertile, thriving tree. Are we supposed to think just about prospering in a very physical sense, like the tree is physically prospering, leaves and fruit? Are our lives physically prospering in in purely a physical sense? Well, in a physical sense, yes, but not purely. First, we, we have to be very clear that in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about prospering, there is indeed a general connection to tangible, lived life in the here and now. The Bible's clear about that. This is a world that God made, and God made it in accordance with the character of God. So He, His character, is wired into the world. It runs through it in multiple layers everywhere. illustration think about truth god is the god of truth because god is himself true completely and always and so he has run through his world everywhere an acknowledgement of truth and accuracy faithfulness to standards and love and a desire for honesty and integrity. Now, we are a fallen world, so we do not completely and perfectly love that, especially when it benefits us. We like to cut corners. But we recognize the need for, and we have a desire for truth and accuracy and holding to a standard. And if you live a life of untruth, life of dishonesty or inaccuracy, long enough... And thoroughly enough, you will develop a reputation and people will not like you. That's the way it is. And that means that in relationships, you will not flourish. And people will not want to do business with you. Everybody in business knows that one quick way to sink your business is to lie and cheat your customers. Lie to and cheat your customers. They will find out eventually and they will not do business with you anymore. You will not prosper. 
Try building a relationship with people in which you constantly deceive them and lie to them and cut corners. You will find that you do not prosper relationally. That, that's one meaning. Verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. So, so here kind of on this earthly level here, in the real lived life here and now. But that is not all that he means when he says, in all that he does, he prospers. Because of how this life of blessedness, this life of prospering, is contrasted with the second type of life, which I'll say a little bit more about later. You could glance down at verses 4, 5, and 6 and see that other life, the life of the wicked. There's the two lives, the, the blessed life and the life of the wicked. And while this life will prosper, this life will perish. Very end of the psalm. That's decidedly spiritual, not in the here and now plane. That is spiritual. Will perish. Will not stand in the judgment. Blessedness is not confined to just physical or tangible things. It may include them, but it far exceeds them. This life of blessedness I ask you, stop and think about this. It, it's, it's right here at this point where I think we touch on something. I think, I think it touches something in your heart that, that resonates, that is kind of like a little light that's, that's slightly blinking. And if you look at it, you'll see there's something there that I want, but it is it is easily set aside and we slump back into the all I, all I see is the here and now and if I'm doing well here and now, great. Do you realize, people, men and women, do you realize that you can prosper in the here and now and be terribly unprosperous? And then conversely, you can be flat, broke, sick, and rich. Attend to this. There is a prospering that far surpasses anything tangible, anything physical, anything you can see right here with your eyes. A prospering in here. The kind of, the kind of life of blessedness, of happiness and contentedness and glad-heartedness that can accompany a wandering servant that has no place to lay his, her, your head. that can accompany a life of, of false accusation and suffering and murder, unjust murder, but can yet be blessed and prospering. That's the life you want. The little light that's flashing there, attend to it. This is what you really want. A heart that is full and knows fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And that has nothing to do with, nothing to do with how much cash you have or how healthy you are or how many people like you. There is real prosperity, real blessedness offered here. Yes, generally speaking, there is a prosperity that he's speaking about here. That is, that is inconsequential by comparison. Blessed 
is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is the one whose way is known by the Lord. Verse 6. And who knows the Lord in whose presence is that fullness of joy you want. That whose right hand is pleasure forevermore that you long for. That's the life of blessedness. That's the only place it can be found. In union with Him, in communion with Him, in fellowship with Him. This, this God who made everything. This God who made you. This God who can be known by you and means to commune with you. What a blessing it would be to walk with Him. To know God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm talking to you too. You may, not, you may not have thought ever about this. But, but I want to put out there, I want to suggest to you that the little flashing light, you, you kind of think you need to order your life and fix some things up. You don't. You need a whole different life. You need a life that, that is alive to the God of the universe. That does not come by fixing some things up. It comes by repenting and saying, God, I'm a wreck. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. But you forgive sinners and rebels who come to you humble. Have me, please. Forgive me. That's why you find the blessed life. But, but Christian, this is written to the people of God. It's written to the people of God, telling you, which is somewhat ironic if you think about it, telling you that the blessed life is available to you. There's in there some assumption that you don't consistently experience it. It's available to you. A life of communing with God. The psalmist tells us about it intends to entice us so that you can, you can see that image of a tree, you, so you can see, I hope you see in your mind's eye, something that looks a lot like Utah, with trees prospering, actually, growing and flourishing and shade to get out of the sun. And that tree never dies. It continues to grow and continues to produce fruit. That you see that and it lures you and you want it and you say, how? How do I get that? How do I get that life? And then you're ready for the second point. We get the two lives and the dividing line in between. Here's the dividing line. This is how that life comes. Blessedness results from internalizing the Lord's instruction. Blessedness is available, but it is not automatic. It's available. comes about, though, when a person takes in and internalizes the Word of God. Verses 1 and 2 make this clear, first negatively and then positively. Negatively, blessed is the man who does not you have three statements. Notice there's a progression in them. The person who experiences the life of blessedness is the one who does not give him or herself to 
walking according to the counsel of the wicked, who has not given himself to standing in league with or in connection to sinners, and has not given himself to sitting or joining in with scoffers. Those three things. The the image here is of a person who sets out on a journey, in this case a journey to find life, and as the person's walking along, someone else on the journey is walking with him and begins to counsel him or her, give thoughts and ideas and say things. Maybe it's coming across the radio or coming, coming from the TV or coming across the fence from your neighbor. Hearing things as you're walking along, you're hearing counsel and you continue to walk with this person because you're, you're thinking and you're listening and you're, you're continuing to walk. And then progression moves, you stop and you stand there with this person. Now you're no longer walking. Standing there, giving it a full hearing. That's the path of the sinner. And then you're persuaded to sit and have full fellowship with them. Someone who sits down, is you're with them then. That's the progression of this, this counsel, this, this advice, this instruction. It comes from a person who is described as the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. Someone who is contrary, living contrary and speaking contrary to this God who is so good. Such people do not believe that and and say otherwise. And if you listen and stand with and then join in with those sorts, you will not find the blessed life. That's verse 1. Now, it doesn't need to mean that a person who's walking with and is then stopped and standing with and then has taken a seat with completely and utterly rejects everything about God. In the context here, this the psalm in dealing with Israel, most of the idolatry of Israel's history was a chasing after false gods while also giving lip service to the true God going into the temple to offer the sacrifices, and going into the temple to worship Baal. Most of the time in Israel's history, both those things happened at the same time. We're no different to that. There are plenty of people who claim the name of Christ, who call themselves Christians, who listen to and walk in and have joined in with plenty of ungodly stuff. Sometimes realizing it and sometimes not. Sometimes just living after and chasing after the values and standards of the world. That's, that's common. And it's not the blessed life. Blessed is the man who does not do that, but on the contrary, verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. So negatively, following and standing in and joining into this type of counsel, the counsel of the wicked, does not lead to the blessed life. And then on the other hand, joining into, delighting in, meditating on day and night the counsel of the Lord, that's the blessed life. 
Blessedness comes from internalizing the word of the Lord. He actually says, the law of the Lord. What does that mean? Whenever that word law comes up, I think modern Christians have kind of a, of a reflex to resist. You shouldn't. For, for a couple of reasons. One, you might find in a footnote, but, but one you can find everywhere else in the Bible. The law of God, footnote says, you might have a footnote that, that points out, another way to translate that word is as instruction. So when you hear law, do not think code. Like a legal code. This is what you should do and should not do, and this will be the penalties of it. There is that in the Bible, but that's not the focus of what he means here. The word should come to your mind as instruction, guidance. Which includes specifics about behavior, but far more than just that. And when you think that, you, you notice that in the footnote, and you think, oh, that's, that's where I should be thinking with this word. Then you realize that's why the law of the Lord is so good. That's why the writers of the Bible everywhere love the law and delight in it here. That's why they find blessed, wonderful things in the law of God. That's why they want to remember it and teach it to their children and have their children internalize it and, and walk under this good law and keep this good law. Not because they are concerned with, with rule and stipulation and, and code. Because they want... The, the good instruction and guidance of the God who is behind the law. The law is, is wonderful and good. Drinking it in and internalizing it is what this verse says leads to the blessed, prospering, flourishing, fruitful life. This instruction from God, it gives, it gives us two things. It gives us, I sometimes perhaps overemphasize, so I want to be very careful with this, perhaps sometimes I, I overemphasize how the Bible, the Word, the law is not, I, I really resist the word rule book or handbook, instruction manual, because sometimes in our minds then it becomes, well, these, if I do X, Y, Z, then poof, out the other side pops a life. It doesn't work like that. So I sometimes overemphasize that it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. So let me say very clearly, there is certainly instruction about wise living. There is certainly instruction about how a God of truth has wired a world with truth and honesty and accuracy. And so if you live in a dishonest way, you will be rubbing against that, trying to cut cross grain, and will find an unprosperous life. That kind of thing is in the Bible, certainly. And that's one of the reasons that the law of God is good and beautiful, desirable. However, there is far, far, far more in the law than just what you are to do. It 
behind what you are to do is a massive revelation of God. Who, with whom you have to do. That's what's precious about the law. If it tells you truth, walk in honesty, behind that is a God who is true and trustworthy who shrinks away from all dishonesty and all deception and can be trusted and relied on, counted on when he makes a promise to carry it out, to bless. That is far more important than you knowing what you should do in this particular behavior, in this particular situation. One's dealing only right here and the other is like this. God, do you see that? That's why the law is precious. And that's why meditating on this law day and night produces a blessedness. Because it brings you into the presence of, introduces you to, and ties you to God. Not just behaviors. God. Do you want blessedness? Do you want a life of of a flourishing tree, fruitful, even when it never rains? Then meditate on this law day and night. It does not come otherwise. I say, do you want the blessed life? Most people say, yes. And then I just have to point out that comes from somewhere. It comes from water that falls somewhere else, runs down here and gets drawn up into me. That's what produces the life. And unfortunately, many of us say, I want the blessed life. I'm not interested in the water. Trees and water go together. If they are separated, the tree dies. That's how it is. Reader, do you want blessedness? Says the psalmist. Reader, when you read this, do you want blessedness? Well, notice that life is the life that meditates on the law day and night. Meditate. That is, not glance at, not simply read it. Uh, you know, one of the dangers that we hand out, and, and I, I do this, and I think there's some benefit to it, of a read through the Bible plan. It's a benefit to that. One of the great dangers of it is that you start cramming in tons of chapters, and meditation is long gone. So you got to get through 10 more chapters today, and you miss yesterday, so now you have 20 chapters you got to get through. And where's meditation? I, I don't remember when I last meditated, but I've read a bunch there's some benefit in that and that it gives you the kind of the lay of the land. Blessedness is meditating day and night. Meditating, not glancing at, not just reading, not studying it like a textbook so that you know all the facts. A lot of us have been through some schooling and have figured out how to pass tests by cramming in facts but have no understanding of those facts. That's not what he's talking about. Meditate. Muse over. 
ponder, think, get it in there and play around with it, roll it over, turn it over. No, no gourmet meal ever came out of a microwave. Right? I, I saw an article in, in a paper a few months back about a, I, I won't name this because I'd be mean, but the, a major expensive restaurant in the area that got caught using frozen food and warming it up and serving it. And people thought, I'm paying how much for this? Now, I, I have no idea where all that came from, but it certainly it made the news. Because everybody expects, if I'm going to get a really good meal, you spent some time on that. And we're careful with it. And you notice the, the temperatures and the particular ingredients and how much. You did not take it out of the freezer, put it in the microwave, and charge me 50 bucks for it. No gourmet meal ever came out of a freezer in a microwave. No gourmet spiritual meal ever came out of a, out of a brief glance at a devotional or, or a quick read through a Bible text. It does not happen. The Scriptures teach us that we must attend to this Word. To meditate on it. To think about it. What does that look like? Let me suggest that you take very small passages, a verse or two, figure out where there's a, a, a thought. Sometimes that's a verse, sometimes it's a paragraph. Where there's a thought, and read it, and then ask it three questions. What does this tell me about God? What does it tell me about me? And what does it tell me about how I need to respond to that? And with a pencil, that's an important. I mean, you could use a keyboard. But with something that makes you write, you answer those questions. We, we read questions and we breathe over and we think, yeah, I see it. But if you start writing, whether it be with pencil or, or typing, it makes you make decisions. Which words do I choose? What is it really saying to me? Let me use an example that was used at the men's retreat. Ephesians 5, if, if, you've, been a, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, particularly if you're a, a man, I, I certainly hope and I assume that you have heard Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So meditate on that. Think. 
stop. Not at a stoplight. Stop by yourself in a room alone and meditate on that, men. What does it tell me about God? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Think, how do I see God here? God loved the church, which by God's grace includes me. And He loved me how? Not by just saying that He loved me, but He loved me by giving His Son, God the Son, who came down by the order of God, by the initiative of God, He sent His Son to give His Son in place of me. So you see that, and now you observed it and you wrote it down. What does it say about God? You wrote that down, and now you think about that. You're not done yet with that. Now you meditate on that. The love of God for me, to give the Son for me, for a person like me, who spent most of yesterday running away from Him and most of last month ignoring Him. For me, you're thinking you're, and you're writing down, you gave your Son for me. You loved me while I was yet a sinner. Perhaps other things will come to your mind. Other passages of Scripture will come up as you meditate And then you begin to to say, thank you, God. You are kind and merciful and gracious. Inadvertently, you just leapt into the third question. How should I respond? You're doing it. Thank you. What a gracious and kind God you are. Merciful because I deserved wrath from you. You're worshiping. Then after some minutes, you move on to the second question. What do I see about me? I see I needed to be given a substitute for. That I was a sinner. And to see myself as a husband, I see that I have a responsibility here. Husbands, love your wives. And then the third question, what do I do about that? Well, I've already worshipped and I've already repented for my sin. And I see then the command to love my wife. And I see how as Christ did, giving Himself. So, so then I write that down. I'm still meditating and I'm writing down. I'm thinking then, what does that mean? Because for me to love my wife might be different than that guy loving his wife. For me to give myself for her, and I keep reading, oh look, it, it tells me why He gave Christ to cleanse the church, to move the church towards righteousness, to bless the church. So what does it mean for me with this wife, not just men and women in general, me with this wife, to give myself for her, to move her towards a sanctified Christ-likeness? Specifically. Well, what does that mean then? We've got this meeting coming up on, say, Tuesday afternoon that I was trying to get out of because I hate that. But she really wanted me there. Maybe I should go and help her. Written down. constantly, day and night, not once a month. Sometimes you will have more time than others in that day and night process, of course. But I'm telling you something here. 
the Bible says you will not, men, you will not experience the blessed life prospering in communion with God, flourishing in marriage, if you don't meditate on that verse. Who wants a good marriage? All the hands go up. Who wants to meditate on that verse, Ephesians 5? <laughs> a woman's hands are going up right there. <laughs> there's, a, there's an undeniable connection here. To meditate day and night. To think about. To ponder. What does this Word say about my God and about me and about how I am to respond? Often in worship and in repentance and then in obedience. Specific obedience. Particular repentance and specific obedience. If you skip that, you skip the blessed life. That's how it is. If you cut off the supply of water, the tree dies. That's how it is. This takes time. It takes time. Men, women, kids, it takes time. But the connection is clear. Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? We do manage to make time for a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I, I think you probably do too. I eat three meals every single day. I get to work every day I'm supposed to. Yeah, I, I make time for things. How come I don't make time for this? How come you don't make time for this? Well, let me point out a word in verse 2 and and let this kind of sift you a little bit. So we have, Blessed is the man who doesn't do this, verse 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And so he meditates on it. Where you find time commitments, you find delights. And where you find no time commitments, you find no delights. We make time for what we like. Now, sometimes we are kept away from things that we like. But let me point out two things. When you're kept away from something you like, you are kept away to something else that you want to do. Even if you're grumbling about it, even if you're grumbling about it, you are also acknowledging, but I would rather do this now than that. You, you go to work grumbling, but you'd rather do that than not have a job. You're, you're doing something here that is in some way desirable to you. 
But the second thing is that even if you are unwillingly kept away, you're, you're caught in traffic, or in, for instance, and, and you, there's nothing you can do about it at all. If you're kept away from something you delight in un, unwillingly apart from your power, it's going on in your mind. You're thinking about it. You want it. You look forward to the time when you can get back to it. If you're, if you're stuck here because the preacher's going on and on and on and on, keeping you from the football game, or I don't know if the Heat are playing today, but in the NBA playoffs, if you're being kept from that, you're, you're thinking about it. You're, you're making space for it. You're meditating on it. We, we, we put time into what we want. And so the convicting piece of this is where you look at your life and say, I want the blessed life, but I don't want to meditate. What that tells you is I don't actually have the delight in the law of the Lord that I should. God help us. Because that, that's the moment that we get revealed. We've been given a Bible and, and we very, very often, if, you, if you're a Christian, very often we say, this is the Word of God. What a precious gift it is. Now what are we going to do for life? Do, do you see that? That's maybe a little blunt. And, but that's what we do. That's what's going on when we are not meditating on this Word, but, but, but professing that it's a great gift to us from God. There's, there's a great treasure that's been entrusted to us, His law that would lead us to life, and then we do not meditate on it because we do not love it and do not believe what He says about it. God help us. God help us. And thank God that He helps us. The, the great, the, the wonderful thing here is that we want the blessed life and God wants the blessed life for His people. He gave you a word and He is engaged with you. If you're a Christian, He is engaged with you to move you and change you and, and drive, fan into flames a desire for this word even right now perhaps as I'm speaking. He is at work talking to you, saying, Christian, this is your life. Trying to grow in your desire for it and to, to point out to you the connection. This law meditated on leads to blessedness. To point that out and to, to fan into flame a, a, a delight, a desire, a want in you. Pass the should into a want to. God is at work to, with you. And has given you His Spirit so that when, while I'm talking here prayerfully, hopefully, in, the, in, the, in the, the flow of what God is wanting to say, there's a receiver on the other end. In you. I'm talking. There's a receiver. God the Spirit in you that, that says yes, 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 yes. And flashes the light a little brighter. Oh, may God light you up. fanning into flame in you a desire, a longing for 
This law, precious, sweeter than honey on my lips, a light for my path. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist. May He light that fire, that desire in you. And thankfully, thankfully, He forgives us of the sin of not desiring. We look at this lack of delight in us and we, we have to acknowledge that there's only one who ever perfectly said this psalm, who lived it. There's only been one perfectly blessed man who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. Only one, ever. One sent and given for us in our lack of delighting and lack of meditating. His name's Jesus. And I have, to, I have to say a little bit about the third, the third point, the, the second life, because I, I have to commend Jesus to you. You who are walking the path of the second life, and I need to point this out. So moving to the third point, we've got one life, We've got a dividing line, and then the third point is the, the second life in verses 4 to 6, and it comes as a warning. So here, here's the point. I'll just express it. Misery results from rejecting the Lord's instruction. Misery results. So you have verse 3. The person oriented towards the Scripture flourishes. Verse 4, not so the wicked. The wicked, those set against God, we met them up in verse 1, are like chaff. Chaff is the, the outer husk on, on a, a grain that grows around the kernel. It grows up together and then at the end, at the harvest time, the grain's cut down and often it was beaten. It could be rolled, but beaten to break the chaff and the grain apart. And then often it would be tossed in the air and the wind blows the lighter chaff away and the heavier grain falls and stays. The wicked are not so, but like chaff, the wind drives them away. Drives them away into judgment. They may seem to prosper. They are growing right along with that grain, but in the end... The beating of the judgment separates the two and the chaff is blown away. They cannot stand at the judgment. They have no part in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's misery in its worst possible expression. And it must be avoided at all costs. So what we are talking about ultimately, is the prosperity in that spiritual realm, not just down here. You might, you might think, well, 
I can handle a slightly less prosperous life here, fewer relationships and less financial benefit. Okay, that's fine. But you come to the end, and what we're ultimately talking about is the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's not just intellectual, it's relational knowing, as knowing often is in the Bible. But the way of the wicked perishes. There are two paths here, and, and so I need to plead with, with some here who are, are on a path called the path of the wicked. And I have met very few people who actually call themselves that. And frankly, it can be a little insulting to read that said of you. But we need to be clear, there are two types of people and there are two paths in the Bible. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. And what clarifies those two paths is not how you look on the outside and not even the relative degree of financial or, or health prosperity here. What clarifies those two, those two paths is Jesus. That's the distinction. Not have you heard of Him and not do you know about Him, but do you know Him? Are you known by Him? So I ask you to stop and to consider something critical. To be turned off of this path of perishing, this path of misery, this path that is a rejecting of the Word of God, the law of God. To be turned off of this path, you must turn back to the Word of God, particularly the Word made flesh. The book of John in the Bible teaches us that God spoke a Word and then sent the Word in flesh. God revealed among us. Not just to teach us how to walk, but to teach us who God is and to teach us what we are, sinners, and then to provide a way to fix that. That's what the cross is. So I, I don't know who I'm talking to here, but I, I point out the most serious of all miseries to you. The path of rejecting the law, the instruction, the Word of God. It leads to an end of condemnation. But God has provided not just Words about what you should do. You already broke those. I did too. But God has provided a source of forgiveness for the rejection of His law. Christ crucified to pay for your sin if you trust Him. Leave the path of the wicked that leads to misery and turn to the Word of God and be saved and find the blessed life. And Christian, 
you having been saved, stop listening to the counsel of people who are on the path of death, the path of misery. And instead, meditate on this beautiful word day and night and be transformed by it as it renews your mind. The blessed life is available to you. Meditate on the law of God constantly and find it. Let me pray. God, would you be our help? Would you be the help of your people? I pray that you would light in your people, that you would then fan into flame and you would grow and spread a consuming desire to know you in your word. And then, Lord, when they come tonight, tonight, tomorrow morning, whenever it is that they make the first step of of attempting to apply this, when they come and they pick up the Bible and they take a passage and they begin to meditate, Spirit of God, would You illumine that time? Would You illumine the Word of God? Would You show God to His people? So give them a taste so that they can see. And then do it again tomorrow and the next day. Lord, I'm asking you to help the very weak belief that we have. We are easily distracted and drawn away from meditating because it takes time and it is work. So so I pray that, that uniquely now that you would show some immediate benefit. That when your people turn to you, that you would be found. Take us into your scriptures, Lord, and build a church, build Christians, build an assembly of Christians who are after you, who want to know you more than we want to know the world. I want to walk with you more than we want to walk in the ways of the world. We will walk in this world, Lord. You have us here and you have many things to do with us and through us. But we want to walk with you day and night while we walk in the world. To want you more than the approval of those around us. To give time to you. Lord, fan that into flame and build a people like that, I pray for the good, for the blessed good, for the prospering good of this people, I pray it. And that would be a great honor to you, the one who did it. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and for your mercy. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.